Ahoy, it's your boy, and welcome to episode 40 of the podcast, This Is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, yeah, sorry, as soon as I started, someone started hammering next door, so you know your boy is distracted. Also, um, I don't know, it doesn't really matter why, but I was doing some cleaning around my apartment, and, um, actually I ended up spilling some isopropyl alcohol, so I still smell it here in my place, unfortunately, but, um, I, there's a decent chance I could be significantly louder on this podcast because, uh, in my cleaning, I accidentally bumped the, the volume knob on my interface here. And I realized that's the first time I've touched the thing since I started doing the podcast. So, um, anyway, you may not notice the difference. You might, um, it doesn't really matter, frankly. Anyway, how you guys doing? Episode 40 of the podcast. Holy shit, man. Another 10 down. And, uh, you know, we're not there yet, but we're slowly inching toward uh, a one year of podcasts. Uh, our anniversary is going to be on September 11th. At least that's when I first recorded the podcast. And uh, that's not too far away from here. Um, yeah, as I was sitting down, I had a uh, Stephen King video playing on YouTube. It was an interview, second part of a two-part interview with Stephen King. Um I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I was connecting a few dots, which was I've been spending a lot of time working with synthesizers. I told you about that. And I've been working, working in massive. And, um, the only reason for that really is, um, you know, our theme music is done by disaster piece. Uh, that's my buddy, rich. And, um, for some reason, I've been going back, and I don't know why, but I'm, uh, I think partly YouTube shows you more of this stuff, but as I was working in synthesizers, uh, I was looking up, like, some, like, synthesizer tutorials or something like that, and this video of Rich uh, doing some workshop in Massive, and he was showing people how to make some patches and kind of, you know, approximating some of the sounds he had made for uh, the soundtrack for Fez, which is where our theme music actually comes from. But, um... But, uh, yeah, so YouTube has been showing me other videos of Rich and interviews with him and stuff, and I don't know, it's got me thinking. Um, Rich is always someone who I've always really admired creatively. Um, One thing I always think about is confidence. And, um, you know, I'm sure his confidence wavers like everybody else, but Rich has always struck me as someone who is particularly creatively confident. And um, if you see interviews with him, you know, the thing that's um, readily apparent is that he really follows his own calling. And despite his success, um, he really does what he can to sort of, you know, do justice to himself and not, you know, necessarily chase the money and challenge himself and try to do something new with every project he does. And those are easy things to say. But um, Rich is one of these people who, when you see him interviewed, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> When you see him interviewed, he's um, particularly earnest and sincere. And, you know, there's so many people, politicians, artists even. I mean, I was just watching um, on Your Mom's House podcast with Tom Segura and his wife, Christina P. They were watching video of Garth Brooks being interviewed for some episodic documentary, I think, that uh, about him that's on Netflix. And the guy is wildly disingenuous and, and phenomenally creepy, actually. But Rich is one of these people who just kind of speaks from the heart, and you can just tell looking into his eyes that um, 
that he's um, he's being sincere. <clears throat> and if you've ever spent any time with him, um, I mean, he's exactly who he uh, appears to be. Uh, where am I going with all this? I think... Right, Stephen King. <laughs> I'm in this period, and I think it has to do with playing jazz drums also, but I'm in this period of my life where I'm sort of returning to interests I had when I was a child. And since I have... I mean, really stopped pursuing music seriously and frankly haven't picked up guitar and and sang for almost the entire year so far. Um, All of my creative, um, um, really all of my creative focus has shifted toward the podcast, but musically um, I've kind of returned to playing drums, which was the first instrument I played when I was a teenager, maybe um, 11, 12. I'm not sure how old I was. Um, and returning to, uh, kind of electronic music. I mean, about the time that I decided music was something I wanted to pursue, Radiohead was my favorite band. And as I'm recording this, I, uh, I'm looking at my computer screen and I, I record into a software program called Ableton. And if you're a musician, you've probably heard of Ableton. It's a pretty complicated, powerful piece of software that acts as a multi-track recorder, like Logic, like Pro Tools, that kind of thing. But it also has um, a sort of adjacent interface that is useful for DJs or electronic musicians, and it gives them you know, the power to, to trigger samples and uh, sounds and sequences live on the fly in a way that um, you know, was not really possible um, before the software existed. Now, that said, the reason I even got Ableton was because because I was listening to Radiohead, which is like very electronic-based music. Um, I thought like I was going to be... I mean, I was singing and playing guitar at the time, but I thought I was going to be like Radiohead. I thought I was going to get really into synthesis. I thought I was going to get into like... I don't know. I was really into Bjork, and I, I just thought... You know, I, I just assumed that I was going to get into that kind of music. So I, I got this software, Ableton. I mean, we're, I think we were talking in the last episode about gear acquisition syndrome and, um, you know, uh, people thinking that a certain piece of gear or kit is um, is going to solve their creative problems. And I'm confident I got into Ableton thinking, well, once I get the software, then I'll start working. And lo and behold, I i mean, I guess earlier in my life, I've spent some time with synth- synthesis and, and that sort of stuff, but I've never used it myself creatively. It's never been a part of my process. And uh, I think it was more I was forcing myself to do it. I, it was something I thought I should do, so I did. It's not something I was really called to. So I've been sitting with this software. It's been my primary recording software, and I do not use 99.9999999999% of it. I've recorded all of my records. Well, I mean, except for the you know the last few years, I've been collaborating with my buddy and producer Gowan Matthews at his studio, which is Pro Tools based. But all of the plastic art records, all of the podcast here, um, you know, any other audio I've ever recorded outside of those recordings I do with Gowan have been done in Ableton, and with none of the features that are inside of it. It's it's largely a mystery, uh, a mystery to me. Um, you know, I think musicians will understand that, but if you're not a musician, I'm not really sure what to compare it to. I mean, it's like, it's like having an iPhone for the calculator, (laughs) you know, it would be like having an iPhone with all this power capability apps and, and potential use and using it for the calculator. 
uh, not even the thing it, it was uh, specifically designed to do, really. Um, so that's what we're working with. And, uh, yeah, so jazz drumming, I think, is a part of that, too. I was not really into jazz when I was drumming, um, but there's something about playing drums and being a drummer and thinking about drumming um, that is from an earlier time in my life. And for some reason, you know, now that I've sort of changed my focus or my creative direction, that's, it's one of the few things that I think about. It's one of the primary things I've, uh, refocused on creatively. And for some reason, you know, when I was a kid, uh, Stephen King was a huge influence on me. And it sounds easy to say because he's having something of, I mean, he's always been successful and I don't think he's ever really gone anywhere. But in the last five years, especially, he's had just an insane renaissance. I mean, there it's like every network has some kind of Stephen King adaptation going on and it being remade, which sucks, but so does the original. So, um, but, uh, yeah, Jesus Christ. Sorry. Someone's hammering outside my window. Um, that's going to be annoying. Um, yeah, so Stephen King's had this huge renaissance, and he was a huge influence on me. And actually, I was, um, you know, I'm watching this interview of him, and he's uh, he's talking about his early novels, and I think especially those were the books that always had the biggest impact on me. Um, I mean, I think I've told this story before, but when I was a kid, you know, I was not really much of a reader, and I think when I was like eight or nine, um, Barnes & Noble was like a new bookstore at the time, and they've since come and gone, which is crazy, but... At the time, they were like the first major bookstore chain. And I remember one opening up in our town, and I was taken there by the mother of a friend of mine. And I think she was just trying to be polite. I mean, she was doing her own shopping, but she was like, um, do you want to get anything? And I was like, well, I don't even know what, where to begin. Like, what should I, like, do you recommend anything? And she recommended Stephen King. And I was like eight or nine years old. And I think she had read some of his novels. And so we go, kind of go over to the section. I'm thinking, well, you know, he already had written like, who knows, maybe a few dozen books by that time even. And I'm like, well, what should I read? And so she, she points out misery and tells me the plot, which is basically, um, you know, an author gets in a car accident and he happens to be found um, by uh, his number one fan who happens to be crazy. And she kidnaps him um and basically holds him hostage until he rewrites the ending of his most recent book to suit her uh her wishes and um now that's an insane thing to recommend to an 8 or 9 year old and yet it was sort of an interesting confluence of factors one it's insane that this my friend's mother recommended it to me um it is insane it happens to be insane but it also is the case that when i was growing up there was really no restriction on what I could watch or what I could read. I mean, um, I could, you know, watch rated R movies when I was a kid. It was just, there was just not a lot of oversight on the content that I was sort of taking in. So, you know, I come home with this paperback version of Misery by Stephen King and read it in like two or three days. And after that, I was just an avid reader. And especially Stephen King was um, uh, just a big part of the, the first books that I read. I mean, I remember one time coming home from somewhere with my mother, and we had uh, this couple who were family friends. And I can't remember why. It was just a super generous thing for this person to do. But as we're pulling into our driveway, this woman, this family friend, is standing in our driveway. And I was like, well, why is she here? And she has two paperback copies of a Stephen King book. 
and it was, I'm pretty sure it was Different Seasons, the short story collection with uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. And I can't remember what the other one is. I could say maybe Skeleton Crew or something. I don't know. I, I, I'd be making it up if I, if I said what it was with any confidence. But for some reason, I don't know why, but um, Stephen King has been popping up in my mind. And I think, I think as I'm finishing Dubliners here, actually, and that's a whole other point um, that maybe we'll get into, but I think as I'm, uh, you know, it could be adjacent to something that happens to me now with television, which is, when I, at the end of the day, you know, after work, after school and all that stuff, I'm definitely entering that phase of life where I just don't give a shit and I don't want to be challenged. I want to watch something brainless. And, uh, like for me right now, that's been the office and I've never really been a fan of the office and even watching it, there's a thousand things about it. I, um, I, I don't like, but it's frequently funny and you kind of know what you're getting and, you know, I'm sort of in season four or five right now and, the, you know, it's getting pretty tired. They're clearly running out of plot points here. But, um, you know, I frequently chuckle at it and it's just kind of a nice palate cleanser at the end of the day to sort of usher me into sleep. And I'm not saying that Stephen King is that. I actually happen to think and I've always felt that, um, you know, I almost was going to say in despite their success, because plenty of things that are successful are fucking god awful right like especially as someone who's been an avid reader most of their life when something takes off i t- i just assume that it sucks and usually when i kind of come around and try to check things out that everybody's you know sort of getting into i'm usually disappointed and i usually think it sucks um the I don't know. The, the, the best example of that is probably something like The Da Vinci Code, which when that came out, I mean, literally everybody read that book. And, um, you know, people I know who weren't readers read it and said it was like, oh, it's just the best thing I've ever read. It was, I picked it up. It was fucking awful. Uh, I remember one moment where there's some writing or something, you know, it, it has to do with like Opus Dei and secret societies and all that sort of shit and cryptic codes and messages or some bullshit. And there's one point where there's some sort of, is it a glyph? What do you call it? There's some sort of codex or that's not the word for it, but there's some secret code writing or something that needs to be deciphered. And I look at it and I go, oh, just hold it up to a mirror. And it's like a fucking, a chapter later, they finally crack the fucking code that you have to hold it up to a mirror. And I was like, yeah, any dum-dum could have noticed that from the very beginning. Um... But yeah, that book sucked. And the other one that comes to mind, unfortunately, is uh, Chuck Palahniuk, which, uh, especially among hipsters, you know, when I was sort of prime hipster age, like 19 or whatever, that was the author that everybody was reading. And, and to be fair, I've heard interviews with Chuck Palahniuk, and I think he's fucking brilliant when he speaks. And um, he's a bit like Brett Easton Ellis, which is I've read their stuff and don't really like it, but when I hear them speak, I, I really respect their intellect. Brett Easton Ellis especially. I, I think his podcast is probably may have been the tipping um the um may have maybe what convinced me to start my own podcast. I think it was two things. I think it was Chris Delia and realizing, damn, this is a, like this is the type of thing I want to create. Whatever the Chris Delia podcast means to me right now, which is like stumbling on a, a new podcast where there's tons of content, but I it's like having a new best friend and it's just one person. I was like um, you know, knowing I was sort of walking away from music, that's what I wanted. I was like, this is something I would like to do. Not that I knew I could do it or not that I thought I could do it, but 
I would want something like that. If I'm not going to be a successful musician, I would like to have this type of connection with people. And um, I remember I was doing a follow-up tour for the Matt Nathanson shows that I had done, sort of going up and down the West Coast, and I was listening to Brady Sinellis um, and actually re-listening to all of those episodes. And I was just so... Um, it was a mixture of... Well, I should say that his was just really thoughtful and profound, and, and just hearing him speak about movies and film and literature. And um, I thought, well, maybe the podcast that I... I do could be a hybrid of the two. It could hopefully be funny. And I believe me, I've thought long and hard recently about how unfunny the podcast has probably been recently. I mean, it's especially in the last dozen episodes or so, I really feel like we have, we have shifted toward like a journal, the fucking, we've definitely shifted toward a more journalistic, uh, um, you know, approach of the podcast. This is more like my audio diary. Um, so I don't know if that's good for you guys. I, I think especially in the beginning, I was working harder to, to be funny and, and, and trying to be entertaining. And now I think I really just kind of found my groove with the whole stream of consciousness thing and, um, just kind of going wherever the conversation takes us. And I hope that's okay. Um, there aren't a lot of channels for you to give me feedback, but, um, that's kind of where we're at, I think. Um, what was I talking about? Yeah, podcasts, Stephen King. <clears throat> yeah, I think I was just trying to say, yeah, well, first of all, I was I was sort of um, giving credit to Stephen King as actually being uh, a profound storyteller. And I think if you see him interviewed, he's another one of these guys who, I don't know, I don't know what you think they'd be like, maybe a blowhard or kind of pompous or whatever. But Stephen King is fucking brilliant, and he's also a very sincere person. And when he talks about his work and he talks about craft, you realize that he's a he's a very soulful and thoughtful person, and and um, and just almost frighteningly intelligent. And um, you know, I think there's something about you know n- you never articulate it this way when you're younger, but. Um, you know, he's just a master storyteller and there's something about the themes and the, and the content of his books that, I mean, it's sort of like science fiction, right? Which is there's plenty of horror writers. There's plenty of science fiction writers and you can sort of write a horror novel or a science fiction story in, in sort of color by numbers, right? Like you have, you know, you have uh, bug eyed aliens from another planet and laser beams and um, time warp and time travel and, intergalactic warfare and all that sort of bullshit. And you can have horror, right, with, uh, uh, you know, the haunted house or, you know, the girl who's possessed or whatever the case is. But if it's just that, it's not really going to have that sort of penetrating psychological effect, right? But when you have, when when you're using those things as a vehicle for the underlying themes, um then you have something special. And I think Stephen King definitely does that. You know, uh, the images that he uses are really ways for him to interact with. I mean, people say this about science fiction. The best science fiction is set in the future, ostensibly, but it's a, it's a, it's a timely commentary on where we're at in the present and where we might be headed if, if things don't change. Um, you know, that's one of the major, I don't know what you call it, tenant or whatever you have, um, for science fiction. And I think Stephen King did that with, uh, and I'm putting this in air quotes, but with horror, 
specifically. And I don't know what it is, but there was something about that novel, Misery, when I was eight or nine that just kind of split my brain open, right? I mean, it's a pretty hefty read for an eight or nine-year-old and to have read it in three days. I mean, I, I can picture myself sitting on the living room sofa for hours at a time just reading. Um, it's strange how something so mundane can be seared into your brain. You know what I mean? I've read thousands of books and very few of them can I actually... You know, I remember the stories, I remember the plot, I may even remember the book itself. I mean, you know, the cover design or something like that. But how many books have we read that we actually remember reading, the act of reading? We remember the room, we remember the quality of the light. And there's something about reading Misery that I remember very clearly. And uh, yeah, it started off a whole... Yeah, I mean, I was basically an avid reader at that point. Yeah, and I'm I'm not sure how all this stuff is related, but there's something about my returning interest in in synthesis, um, and drumming and Stephen King that all kind of feel related somehow, and and in some way too, I think my you know just watching interviews with Rich, which by the way, I mean I have thoughts about this. There's I you know I think I forget what episode it was. It was one of our early ones, maybe episode three or you'll have to look at the uh, the episode descriptions, but. There was one episode where I talk about uh, Rich Vreeland, uh, a.k.a. Disasterpiece, who wrote the, the theme music for the podcast. Um, there's something about my relationship with him that has always stuck with me. And there's something about my relationship with him that it, it is, for me, I think he would be uncomfortable to hear this, but there's something about the way I experience him and, and really have experienced myself in contrast to him that is sort of really emblematic of something that I've always struggled with. Um, I mean, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking, you know, you know, memory is such a strange thing. Um, you know, we think it's like a video camera or we think it's, um, like our brain is just the stenographer taking notes of our living experience, but it's prismatic and it's more of a mixing bowl of sensory experience, right? And there are so many things that you experience. And for some, for some reason, it often feels like, especially in therapy, you do have these very singular memories that, um, you know, you sound like a crazy person if you ever confront someone about it when you say, well, there was that one time where you did this and they go, Jesus Christ, man, that's what you're upset about? Get over it. But it's not that that one experience was so important as much as that memory, that one instance stands as the totem of a thousand other instances that were very much like it that just, you know, we don't have the capacity to recall. There's something about me remembering reading Misery, you know, almost like, in that moment, you know, maybe this is the super ego that people talk about, this sort of personified other ideal that we sort of, we feel living alongside us that we sort of compare ourselves to. But, you know, it's like there's this entity standing alongside us at different times in our life that's whispering in your ear, remember this. Like, this will be important, you know? Um... I mean, I'm thinking like, especially early, like now we all have iPhones where we can take thousands of photos and most of the content that we take, most of the the videos and the photos we take, we never look at. <clears throat> Whereas when you were, when I was a kid, you know, you had 
you know, even then photos were more common than they had been in, in just the recent past. But more often than not, you had a photo album. You know, you had not really pictures from each of your birthdays. You may have photos from one birthday from your childhood. And there were maybe eight photos or something like that. And whether they were in focus, whether they were uh, overexposed or not, I mean, that that was the photo you had. Um, yeah, what am I saying? Yeah, maybe memory is like that. I don't know. <clears throat> um, but yes, my relationship with Rich. Um, you know, I've always felt... You know, I've always felt like creative confidence is something that I've struggled with. And um, Rich just doesn't... Excuse me, sorry, I'm stifling a burp and yawning at the same time. You know, Rich has always been the opposite of that to me. And I remember one instance where he and I went out to lunch. And I think he and I probably had not seen each other for a while. And we went to this place. And I just remember it was almost like a bad date for me. And not that Rich would ever remember this experience, but it was, I think in that moment, for whatever reason, I think I had like just broken up with my girlfriend and I was in this transitional period and I was feeling kind of lost. And, you know, Rich has always been, from an outsider's perspective, has always, you know, I mean, since Fez, I think he's never had to really, I mean, he gets offers for work every day, you know, so um, he's always had the next thing. Um, he, he's always had his pick of the litter. And not that he doesn't struggle creatively at times and, and, you know, he has to live his own life and sort of traverse his own journey, of course. But from an outsider's perspective, he has, I should say, he's had relative direction and focus in his life that I, I've just never been, been able to find for myself. And I've always just felt, especially in his presence or even just and now just watching these videos and hearing him speak and, and watching him work from a distance... Um, and even hearing about his success and things that he continues to work on. Um, I just feel like he's put together in a way that I just never had, certainly at the time that he and I knew each other well, when we sort of lived in proximity to each other. But I don't know that I've ever been able to find. And, you know, it, maybe it, maybe it's like resiliency or maybe even intelligence to some degree, but maybe it's just the type of thing that gets dealt out at random at people in the world and try as you will, try as you might. If you don't have it constitutionally, you just may not develop it. Um, there's just something to Rich's character that I've always wanted for myself that he seems to have in spades um, that... I just was never able to, it never calcified for me. I understand it as a concept. It's something I've always aspired to. It's never been able to, it doesn't keep, you know, it's like a square pig in a round hole. It just doesn't really work. I mean, I'm thinking about in therapy, um, you know, there's this concept that something is wrong with me. I always come back to this. And as soon as, no matter how many times I've talked about it, no matter how many times, you know, we've sort of resolved it as it relates to whatever issue may be in front of us at the time, it all, we always come back to it. And especially after being in therapy for a decade, you think, how much longer am I going to have to work on this? What, what more has to happen for, for, for me to take this information in? And 
for some reason it feels related to the creative competence thing too. Um, I, you know, I've talked about it. I recognize it in other people. I want it for myself. And yet it just doesn't take, it's like, you know, whatever the system requirements are for that particular piece of software, my, I just don't have it. You know, I, I'm, I'm running DOS and this is sort of a, uh, Intel Mac software or something like that. but yeah it makes me feel insecure um and yeah I don't know I think that'd be a weird thing for him to hear um I mean I've well maybe it just feels insecure for me because there are times well, I guess it speaks to something that just exists between people where, where there's a, a power dynamic. And I don't mean, you know, we're talking about something very different than like sex appeal or um, money. You know, we're talking about something kind of ephemeral, but I feel it very palpably, right? I feel my insecurity. I feel something about Rich's personality that makes me feel insecure. And so I... I feel this power dynamic between us. And, um, and, uh, I've certainly felt that way at other times in my life where I've sat across from somebody who, for reasons I can't, I don't understand and and can't really explain. I see them, um, I don't want to say subjugating themselves, but they're, or supplicating. I, I can't genuflecting or something, but I sense that there's something about the way they experience me where they're not feeling entirely comfortable. um, um, I mean, you feel it the most, I mean, it's, it's insane to me, but you do feel it very palpably when you, when you perform sometimes, um, people will, you know, especially people who are seeing you for the first time, whether or not they know you by reputation, maybe they have listened to your music before seeing you. Maybe you just happen to be playing at a coffee shop that they're at, but they were, you know, sufficiently impressed by what they saw that they want to speak to you. They do approach you with a bit of like, oh shit, you were the guy who was just on stage. You were the guy who everybody was just looking at 10 minutes ago. Um, that's just completely divorced from how you experience yourself, but, but it makes sense, right? So I think what I'm trying to say is, in a way I feel embarrassed because, you know, I shudder at the thought of someone sitting across from me and seeing me in the position that I've seen other people in. But at the same time, you know, Rich is a good guy. I, I, you know, he, uh, he continues to associate with me and, uh, you know, I'm sure there's something about me that he likes and, uh, this is just my own issue, uh, to be dealt with. I mean, sometimes I think about this in terms of, you know, there's this whole, uh, Joe Rogan constellation of podcasts, right? With Tom Segura, Burt Kreischer, Joe Rogan, and all those people. And there's something funny about Joe Rogan, especially in the last few years, which is when people come into his studio, he he almost has this Howard Stern effect on people, where whether or not you like him, whether or not you agree or disagree with everything he says, Joe Rogan yields a huge amount of influence. I mean, if you look at the numbers, he's one of the most influential broadcasters working right now, and he does it from, he does it via a podcast. Um, and so people come and sit in his studio and they know they're sitting on a mountain, uh, you know, a, a gold mine of an opportunity because of his reach. And because Joe Rogan is 
particularly opinionated and he has a strong stance on certain issues, he can be very divisive for listeners especially, and I'm sure even for guests. But when people come into that studio, they navigate the space uh, a certain way. And I find, especially recently, people are very congratulatory. They're very almost, almost sycophantic when they sit across from him. Um, um, yeah, and how does that relate to Rich? Um, yeah. Yeah, something about sort of being in the presence of somebody that there are things about them that you... Um, I'm trying not to say the word envy, but I do. Um, yeah, you, I mean, it's weird, but you look up to them in a certain way. And there's something that they have that you want for yourself. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's weird, you know. Uh, I mean, the, you know, the, the thing about doing a podcast is I'm sort of sitting here by myself thinking, uh, talking about things that I've sort of uh, thought through for the last week or so and saying them into a microphone and so it, it, it it's it's relatively easy because as far as you know my biology is concerned and, and what my brain is telling me is that nobody nobody hears this but of course um I would be phenomenally embarrassed if uh you know if I was sitting next to Rich while he happened to be listening to this podcast but um but uh in a way you kind of need that though you know, especially for a podcast. I think, I think for art in general, I think the only chance you really have to connect with people is when you're, when you say too much and I don't mean you actually overshare, but, um, and that certainly happens also. It's not that I'm, I'm, it's not that I've never done that either, but, but there's something about when people, and I think partly this is what bothers me about a lot of the social justice movement now is, is, is not the ethos, um, if that's the right word for it. It's not the ideals. It, it's the performative aspect of it, which is people just want to be, they want to say the right thing. They want to do the right thing. They want to be celebrated. Um, and yet, and maybe this goes back to what's interesting about Stephen King is when when you actually come to art, when you come to creativity, what you actually want is for someone to stumble on what you're doing and say, holy shit, I've been looking for this. You know, you want them to hear things and ideas that they've always felt and, you know, either they have or haven't um, articulated it to other people, but they see something in themselves. And it's like they want to be shown something. It's like, you know, you want to be, le- creatively, you want to be led by someone who says something like, hey, come over here, have a look at, have a look at this thing I want to show you. It's almost like, have you, and speaking of Stephen King, have you seen Stand By Me, which is based on his short story, The Body from Different Seasons? Um, it's kind of interesting, actually, when you tell people Shawshank Redemption is based on a Stephen King story, they, they're like, they can be incredulous, like, what the fuck? That's not Stephen King. And another film that people would go, oh, that's Stephen King, is Stand By Me, which is based on his story of the body. And both stories are in the collection Different Seasons that we mentioned a moment ago. But um, but Stand By Me is like, it starts with the premise, hey, you want to see a dead body? And in a way, that's kind of a nutshell of what creativity should be. 
you know, there is something taboo about death. There's something taboo about a body. And, and we sort of approach death and even like the corpse as a concept as um, something to be revered and respected and observed at a distance at best. And um, there's something sacrosanct about it. But of course, there is also the the inevitable interest in the topic, that wanting to see a dead body. There's something... You know, we say it's morbid, we say it's macabre, but it's, you know, if we divorce those words from it, it's just completely natural. It's interesting. It's stimulating. But it's also, well, by the way, it's something you're going to be eventually. You will be a corpse yourself. And it's this sort of necessary part of our lives that we all think about and and we're just removed from somehow. And creativity, especially comedy, is a way to bring people closer to things that are just frequently unobserved, right? And uh, that's what the best creativity is, you know? And I, I know there are other concepts, too, like, I mean, especially in comedy, you have this. Um, you have it in politics, also, the sort of Ann Coulter's of the world. Um, I'm trying to, like, maybe, maybe uh, Andrew Dice Clay is sort of a comedic version of this, too, but, you know, you have people who just sort of say heinous, salacious stuff, and they sort of couch that in what I'm talking about. But I, there's, I think there's a more sophisticated way to do it. Um, but, uh, yeah, something about dead bodies and, and podcasts. But, you know, create, creatively you want to show people something different, something that they can relate to. And, um, yeah, you don't just want to repeat the same shit that everybody else says. I mean, I mean, I was talking about this with my girlfriend, but... You know, whether it's in a work environment or just socially, I'm just always kind of kind of repulsed <laughs> uh, and very judgmental. And uh, but of people who just kind of use whatever the group think speak of the time period is. You know, at work, it's always like, um, let's itemize that and circle back and let's park that and um, and all sorts of stuff. Like in people's now, nobody can just speak straight and nobody says, oh, thank you for saying that. They'll have to say something like, thank you for naming that. Thank you for naming that in this space. Thank you for holding space for that. And it's just like, I don't know. People are fucking lemmings, man. People just like hear some buzzword and go, oh, yeah, I'm going to say that, too. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, you know, I think especially now at a time where we're supposed to be coming together and affecting social change as a as a group now. Um, yeah, I feel like I'm not supposed to say this stuff, but um, yeah, I just, I feel like when I was younger, we valued independent thinking and uh, people liked to be shown something new, something challenging. Um, I mean, there was a whole genre of filmmaking that was just like, for shock value that was considered art because that was a that was a trope of supposedly high-minded art was that it was challenging um it was taboo i mean irreversible gaspar noe is still i mean in, in a way gaspar noe the filmmaker he seems sort of anachronistic now because his latter stuff which is still salacious and gratuitous it's not of the time period and i'm not saying he shouldn't do it i'm just saying it's just strange how when a movie like Irreversible comes out, it seems cutting edge and forward thinking and salacious. And and I don't think even a lot of people thought it was necessarily great film. Like it was still sort of questionable, but you could get away with it. It was it was still it was still an area of 
supposed serious art that existed. Um, and now to continue doing that, that's like, that's not what we do now. You know, I was talking with somebody recently about Quentin Tarantino and I don't care what people think. I think Quentin Tarantino is one of the greatest filmmakers in history. And somebody was saying that we've, I forget how, I forget what we were talking about exactly, but they were saying we've moved on. You know, uh, I think we've moved on as a society, is what somebody said of Quentin Tarantino. One, I thought that was completely dismissive because uh, his first films especially are some of, like, the greatest films that we have. And if you dismiss them because of, and I'm not even sure that there's a basis for the objection, but but if for whatever reason you happen to object to their, I don't know what you call it, politics or whatever, um, again, not that I think you should, but if you happen to, if you dismiss those films because of that, you're sort of cheating yourself, frankly. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Something about Gaspar Noe being, um, yeah, there's something about him continuing to do that. Like th- those aren't the films that we do now. The films we celebrate now are Moonlight. The, the, the art that we create and celebrate collectively is the stuff that, it just echoes the, you know, whatever the groupthink politics of the day are. Um, I mean, something I have thought about, for, I don't know that it's come up on the podcast, but it came up uh, with my buddy Matt. You guys know Matt, the MVP of the podcast from last year. And by the way, we got to announce a new one, I guess, here, uh, in um, probably before episode, probably before the halfway point here, probably before, maybe episode 50, we'll do that. Let's let's pencil that in, but let's pencil that in, and so let's park that for now and, and circle back to that. But um, but uh, oh yeah, the thing that came up with Matt is the play Coriolanus by Shakespeare, which you know it's sort of like Titus Andronicus uh, that it just sort of is considered not one of his best, and I think that's true of Titus Andronicus. You literally read Titus Andronicus and it feels like it was written by somebody else. Like you, you literally read it and think, this doesn't feel like Shakespeare. It, it feels like somebody doing a bad Shakespeare impression. So I don't know if maybe 10 years from now, um, historians will say, oh, actually it was written by some other fucking guy. And it got lumped in, in the early folio or something like that. But, um, but uh, Coriolanus, I think, is one of his, I mean, I think it's one of his greatest plays. I mean, it's certainly, it, it, it's, you know, I don't know if it's on par with, like, the four great tragedies, like uh, Macbeth, Hamlet, King Lear, and Othello, but it's, uh, it's sort of like a B-side, you know what I'm saying? It's like a really good B-side that if you're a real fan, you get into. Like, I remember Radiohead was this way, too. Like, you had the canonical records, which were great. Um, it's crazy now that all this stuff's on Spotify, so you'd actually don't have to look far for it. But at least when, you know, when I was a lad, you know, you had to like get these like Japanese import singles, right? And they would have these different B-sides on it. And so a song like Fog, you'd be like, oh shit, that's like one of my favorite Radiohead songs. But part of what you liked about it was that nobody else, you know, most of the people who liked Radiohead had never fucking heard the song. You know, all the amnesiac B-sides and stuff, which were like fucking incredible. Um, but Coriolanus is that way. And when you read Coriolanus, or at least what a lot of people talk about it, they talk, it's a tragedy of the main character Coriolanus, who is this war hero, ostensibly. And when he returns from battle, you know, they have this sort of staged political event where they, um, they want to celebrate his, his conquest. And, uh, because he sort of is modest and doesn't sort of, um, 
just, he's not willing to just repeat the political, you know, cliches of the day. I mean, it would, it would be something like nine 11, you know, saying, uh, I don't know. What do people say? Like never forget or God bless America or even something like with Donald Trump, make your, make America great again. It would be like someone who you would expect to say that, say, no, I'm not going to say it and being fucking excoriated for it. And so what Coriolanus does is he leaves the community and goes and fights for the enemy and leads them and marches against his own home. Um, and a lot of people look at that and they, you know, they think Coriolanus is this sort of proud, almost Achilles type character. I mean, you know Achilles from the Iliad. It's really all about him overcoming his pride. Um, I mean, I think the opening line of the Iliad is something like, "Sing, excuse me, sing to me, O muse, the anger of Peleus' son Achilles that brought pain thousandfold upon the Achaeans, or something like that. Dude, your boy's so literate. <clears throat> but, um, but what Coriolanus really is about is the fickleness of crowds and how easily... Um, the mass of people are swayed by political cliches. And I have to go back and read it. And so I only want to touch on it now. And maybe when I go back and read it, I'll have more to say about it. But, you know, there are, you know, I'm not sure if they're senators or consuls or whatever, but there's an entire, you know, the, the backdrop of the entire story is the politicians saying, we can basically control whatever the fuck people do based on just giving them platitudes to repeat. Um, and I think that we're living in a world very much like that right now. I mean, whether or not the aim is noble, you know, um, Black Lives Matter, great. Obviously, um, you know, we need to we need to address the the seeming epidemic of police brutality, especially against people of color. <clears throat> but when we have slogans like "defund the police." I don't know that I can get behind that. I mean, I, I can get behind the sentiment. I can get behind a very qualified version of that statement, but I need more details. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, but, uh, you know, you either have to chant the creed or get fucked these days. It feels like, and maybe that's not true, but I'm, it, you know, it certainly feels that way. Um, and how did we get here? Who the fuck knows, man? It really is a stream of consciousness. We went from Stephen King to fucking Shakespeare. Anyway, I think the whole point of that whole thing with Stephen King, though, was just this idea that, and I think I was trying to relate it to The Office, but, you know, I'm finishing Dubliners. I should say I have been finishing Dubliners. And I think when I'm done with it, I'd like to give myself permission to just, like, reread Misery or something like it, you know? Something that's a little lighter fare, but... um but, uh, you know, I feel so much, so much my interest in things is academic. You know, I, it's like I set a, a curriculum for myself when it comes to things I read. Like, I, it's almost like I feel like I will have not completed my task if I finish Dubliners and don't, which I've already read them, but if I don't go on to reread Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man and Ulysses, it's like I won't have completed the, the, the Joycean curriculum that is in front of me, right? Like, heaven forbid, I just read what I want. It's like I have to do things completely. It's not enough for me to just fuck around with synthesizers. I have to get the software centorial and teach myself synthesis. Do you know what I mean? <clears throat> it's insane. I've always, I've always been that way, though. I can't just, like, dabble in something. I have to understand it. You know, if I listen to Stravinsky, I'm going to listen to all of Stravinsky. And 
yeah, it, it's just I force myself to do things that maybe even maybe I don't even enjoy it that much. But it's like I feel like at some point, you know, like if I if I if I say I oh have you read Joyce? Yes. It's like I'm scared that somebody's gonna like um um you know someone's gonna ask for my Joyce credentials. You know, and say, oh, oh, well, of course you read Dubliners, but have you read Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man? It's like, I'm that fucking dick, dickwad that needs to say, oh, yes, I actually find it far superior to his much, uh, much more popular work, Dubliners. Or, you know, I mean, for me, the, like, the, the epitome of this for me is like Gravity's Rainbow, which is a fucking super long novel that I read by Thomas Pynchon, which, you know, it's one of those novels that you're supposed to read that everybody, you know, pretends to like. It's fucking awful. I've always described it as a hateful reading experience. And yet, instead of just putting the fucking thing down and turning to something that I enjoyed, I had to read the whole thing. Because if I didn't like it, if I was not going to like it, I needed to have finished it. Because all the time you're sitting across from some egg-headed motherfucker who says, oh, my favorite novel is Gravity's Rainbow. And you're like, oh, I read that. I didn't like it. And they go, well, did you finish it? You don't want to be that guy who goes, No. Because then they'll say, oh, well, you got to get past page 250. That's when things really take off. <clears throat> you want to be able to tell that guy, oh, yeah, I did. It still sucked. Although, and even now I tell myself I'm going to go back and reread it. What the fuck is wrong with me? Aren't there plenty of books that I probably would enjoy? Why don't I just fucking read those things? <clears throat> Anyway, God damn it. It's so funny. I, especially this week, I've been like going through it with like taking notes as things come to me that I'm like, Oh, I could talk about that on the podcast. I could talk about that on the podcast. And lo and behold, I'm fucking sitting here talking about shit. I had no idea we were going to be talking about. Meanwhile, I have all these things in a fucking Google doc that I was like, Oh, I can just talk about these things. I have not talked about a single fucking one of them. But it's like therapy, man. Whatever comes up is coming up for a reason. I mean, creativity is kind of that way, too. It's like if you could just sort of, you know, part of, um, you know, YouTube showing you more of what you're already looking at, because I've seen these sort of Stephen King interviews. For some reason, it's showing me, um, I'm going to butcher his name, but George R.R. R. Martin. Is that the author, the author of the Game of Thrones series? I've never fucking read those books. My brother has. He loves them. And I know plenty of people who I respect their opinion who fucking love those books. So they, I'm sure they're great. I just haven't read them. That's me, dude. I'm the contrarian. Everyone's reading them. I don't, want to, I don't want anything to do with them. I'll read them 20 years from now and pretend like I always liked them. But the point is, is uh, I saw this video of him and he's talking about how he doesn't outline. He doesn't outline his stories. And part of that is... You know, maybe I, I think a lot of it is laziness. I think a lot of what <laughs> I think a lot of what uh, dictates creative work a lot of times is laziness. Comedians, especially comedians, seem to be particularly um, calibrated to not like working very hard. And a lot of the people who happen to be successful, I think, are just phenomenally fucking talented. And uh, where am I going with this? Um, Yeah, man, I don't know. Your boy's dumb. Your boy, your boy's not very intelligent sometimes. Yeah, I have no fucking clue where I was going with that. (coughs) 
maybe I should look at this Google Doc. I won't. Uh, I won't necessarily force myself to go into these things, but I'd like you to read. I'd like you to hear some of these notes. Do I even have it up here? Yeah. Oh shit! There is this thing. It's actually kind of interesting. Remember at the end of last episode, I was talking about the shopping cart theory. Well, the Instagram algorithm, which is where I saw that from on my buddy Aaron Marsh's um, Instagram profile, showed me this uh, Instagram profile called Cartnarks, and it's video of this guy who just sort of catches people not returning their shopping carts in the parking lot of grocery stores and stuff, and he basically chases them down and calls them on it. And I thought, holy shit. This is the fucking guy, man. And so I sent it to my buddy Aaron Marsh. And uh, God, you know, I love this about Aaron Marsh. He's one of these guys who, like, if you send him something and his phone is in his hand, he'll respond. He's not one of these fucking guys who, like, goes, no, I'll get back to you Friday or something. Or does it, he doesn't, it's not like he worries about appearing over eager. You know, he just approaches, especially online communication in this very sort of transparent and kind of, I don't know, honest way. And I fucking love it. He just responds right away. And he's like, I think he said, he's not wrong, but he's a fucking asshole or something like that. And, and it really stopped me in my tracks because I had not experienced it that way. When I first saw it, I was like, oh, fuck yeah. Like, that's the guy I wish I was. But his case, it was kind of interesting. It really made me think. It was something like, uh, fuck it, I'm not going to pull it up. But his, he can fucking, he, I don't know, he can correct me if he wants to. But his argument was something like, he's not wrong, but you're a fucking asshole if you basically, it takes, a, it takes big balls to deputize yourself to police people for something that's technically not a crime. And even though, uh, and I believe this, you're a fucking dick face if you don't return your shopping cart, I'm also kind of being a dick for for calling you on it publicly, or at least sticking my cell phone in your face and shaming you about it. And not that Aaron made this point, but this is, this is the connection I made, because the person I do hate is the person who, uh, you know, shames people about their masks. I mean, remember I was talking about people losing their fucking minds lately, and there were these two grown-ass women yelling at each other in the park about face masks. And I don't care who the fuck was right. I was just embarrassed for them. But, you know, we all see these videos circulating now of people calling someone else on not wearing a face mask in public and people running up to people and sticking a cell phone in their face and saying, look, someone else not wearing a face mask and like fucking putting it on Facebook. And when that person goes, get the fuck out of my face. And they go, oh, well, that's going online or some bullshit. And I thought, wow, what a lapse in reasoning. What a lapse in your reasoning that you fucking hate that person, and yet just a second ago you were fucking celebrating this person. It just goes to show you, you may think you're smart, but you got to be careful. You know, we're all wired to sort of celebrate and champion the people who are uh, fighting for our cause, right? Who have the same ideological commitments as we do. But... uh, but uh, when we see someone doing something else that we happen to disagree with, we fucking hate that person. When really, there's a fair amount of equivalence, you know what I mean? Anyway, so yeah, that was at the top of my thing, this Cartnarks thing. It's still worth checking out, I even if it's, uh, you know, even if it's not something you want to emulate, you can probably still get a good laugh out of it. So find Cartnarks on Instagram. What else do I have here? Sam Goody Music Guys. Uh, yeah, so when I was a kid, I worked at the mall, and I don't know if anyone else has worked at the mall, but working at the mall sucks, 
because it is just like the fucking movies where you literally have, first of all, mall walkers. If you have to open up your store, you're there like an hour before the mall itself opens. And there are, you know, if it's a big enough mall, you can have like a hundred elderly people who are fucking shuttled in from their uh, senior living center to walk the mall. Because even though the stores aren't open, the mall itself, the doors are unlocked. And so people literally walk the mall. Now, I've thought about this. I, of course, it's some, it's easy to make fun of or whatever, but it's actually a really creative, almost brilliant use of public space, right? Like, here's this fucking, I mean, some would say a tumor of, of uh, capital, capital, capitalism and consumerism, uh, this sprawl of a parking lot surrounding this fucking, um, uh, this, uh, pit of, of, uh, of materialism. And yet people are repurposing it as a, as a place to sort of almost use like a park, right. Or get their exercise in a safe, in a safe place. Also, this is a vulnerable population of people and, and here they're, you know, relatively safe or whatever. So it's actually kind of cool. But of course, when you're young, it looks stupid. And, um, so you definitely have that, and then you literally have people who fucking are at the mall every day from the time it opens to the time it closes. Literal mall rats. They literally fucking are there from the time it opens to the time it closes, and they their social circle is the people who work in the stores. And depending on what you got going on, they basically just kind of like circle the mall. They just fucking do laps. They poke their head into that store, kind of, and they never buy anything. But it's like working at Sam Goody, which many of you may not fucking remember this thing, but it was a CD store. Um, it was kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, it was like a lot of CD stores that were in malls. Musicland was another one. I think actually they were owned by the same company, but, but yeah, just racks of CDs and like and CD storage was a big thing, like CD towers and CD binders and all that sort of shit. Disc cleaner, which they're always trying to get me to sell. Like every time before shift, you would have these projected sales goals where it's like um, every staff person has you know different goals of what they want people to sell. So um, I want you to sell this many, um, what do they call it? Like membership stuff, frequent shopper kind of a program kind of thing. They want you to enroll people in as they're checking out. I want you to sell this amount of disc cleaner or some bullshit like that. And I never fucking made any of those goals. And because it was a music store, hell, that's why I fucking worked there. But when you have a music store, probably like a bookstore, a lot of the people who work there are just interested in that thing in general. And part of their interest is they think, damn, well, I don't want to work, but what kind of work might I enjoy? And it's always something adjacent to their interests. So it's like, if you're an aspiring author, you may work at a bookstore. But there's a certain kind of lameness to like working at a big corporate chain. Like if you're an aspiring author, but you work for the, um, you know, the uh, locally owned used bookstore, like that's kind of fucking cool, right? Like if you read George Orwell's essay, Bookshop Memories, you kind of it's it's kind of romantic to think of George Orwell like kind of in a dusty old used bookstore, but it'd be fucking lame to think of George Orwell at fucking uh, uh, Borders, right? Or Barnes and Noble. Um, it's just a little too corporate, right? It's not cool. It's like being in a coffee and working at Starbucks. You want to work at like the mom and pop coffee shop, but um, music is that way too. And in Tucson, where I'm from, there was a there was a great used uh, sort of locally owned. Uh, 
CD store called Zia. And if you were the shit, you would work at Zia. But if you were lame like your boy, you would work at Sam Goody in the mall, which is super corporate. And uh, and uh, the people who worked there were all kind of, you know, tangent tangentially interested in music also. There was one fucking dude who was a straight-up cartoon character, and he happened to be the nicest dude that we worked with, like just a genuinely good fucking dude. But he was like 40 years old, and he looked like Slash. He looked like a fucking glam rock dude who just never got out of the 80s. He was one of these people who just had their look in the 80s and was just going to fucking be that the rest of their life. You know what I mean? He had the long flowing hair that was kind of like fucking permed out. He would wear like a size too small t-shirt and like roll the sleeves up and wear these fucking tight ass jeans and boots. And he just looked like he fucking walked out of fucking band practice. Like he's in this uh, glam rock cover band you know, the sort of glam rock cover wedding band that he just sort of fucking walked out of. But he happened to be one of the nicest guys we work with. There was also this other guy. He was like a heavy set Hispanic dude. And he was super into hip-hop music. And he happened to be an assistant manager. And I was just a fucking lowly fucking sales floor person guy, stocking CDs and shit. Like, I remember the new fit, like, when 50 Cent, his first record dropped, we got, like, 500 copies of it. And I just spent, like, four hours in the back, like, sticking them in those plastic sleeves that they used to have to take off at the counter for security purposes. And God, I was a horrible employee, man. I was, like, 15. I fucking hated working. Sometimes I would, you know... I would be a no call, no show. I would never fucking meet my sales goals. I have no fucking idea why they kept me. Um, but this guy, he knew I was into music, right? And I think he got, he kind of got a kick out of talking to a younger kid about music. And he, at the end of every shift, especially at the, when at stores closing, he would have to drop the deposit off at the bank of America that was across the street. And so we would leave my car in the parking lot of the mall and I would get in his car, which was this fucking slammed Cadillac with like a huge subwoofer system in the back. And he would fucking drive across the street to Bank of America and make the deposit. And then we would just sit in the Bank of America parking lot and fucking listen to his hip hop, his hip hop music, music he was making for himself. And I was thinking about this because especially in my neighborhood, I hear a lot of people listening to hip hop music and they're just sort of blasting on the stereo. And it's one thing when you hear E-40 or Too Short, but there's also a certain category of music that you hear where it's hip-hop, but it's also shitty. And, like, the beat doesn't line up perfectly, and you can just kind of tell it's kind of homemade. And I've always thought, I always assume, I go, I think it's that, that, that is that person's music. Like, they fucking exported this out of fucking Fruity Loops or whatever they're working on, and they're just fucking bumping their own music, hoping somebody goes, oh, man, that shit's slamming. What is that? And you go, oh, it's me, man. Here, fucking check out my Instagram or whatever the fuck. But um, but that's what this guy did. He would basically just sit me down in this Cadillac, and for like an hour, he would play me his most recent fucking beats and raps. And he was like, dude, he was like a super nice guy, but he was also kind of square. But he would rap these fucking hella gangster fucking cutthroat lyrics. And it was like, it was hilarious, man. He was like, he was, his number one idol in hip hop was this dude, Brother Lynch Hung. And if you don't know Brother Lynch Hung, you got to look him up. I think he was also super into 3-6 Mafia. But dude, fucking Brother Lynch Hung was like his fucking Jesus. It It was his Elvis. You know what I'm saying? And, uh... And yeah, that was fucking crazy. The other thing that was fucking nuts, and we're going to have to go after this, but 
the store manager was this kind of older guy, and he was kind of a Michael Scott from The Office type character. Not that he was as clueless as that guy, but he had that quality of just being like a middle-aged guy who didn't quite see himself the way other people did and was probably not entirely satisfied with, with where he was at in his life, but he was kind of trying to be cool. Do you know what I mean? And there's something about this I'm sort of sensitive to because now that I'm older and I'm in a place where I look at younger people and I realize, oh, we're, we're not alike. I'm not of their generation. They look at me like an old fucking man. But I don't try to, in, I'm not especially concerned with endearing myself to them, right? Like I, I, noticed, I noticed the difference between us. I noticed that we're not really relating on a, we're not of the same uh, uh, cultural zeitgeist, right? But it's like I don't feel insecure and I don't feel called to sort of like overcompensate for that, right? Some people definitely have that, and it's a little confusing for me, but this guy had something like that. And like other people that we worked with, he was very much into music. And he had built this fucking recording studio attached to his house. And it's insane considering how fucking, how, how horrible I was as an, as, an, as, all right, let's try that again, folks. It's insane to me given how horrible of an employee that I was, that he would extend himself to me this way. But after one of our shifts at night after closing, he says, hey man, you should come over to my house and see my studio. And I was like, uh, okay. And he had, you know, if you're not a musician, you're not gonna be able to picture this, but it was just like, a, like he turned this shed attached to his house into a recording studio. And it was like, he had the live room, he had the fucking mixing room, and he had the glass in between, he had the vocal booth and... It was all there, but it was definitely fucking self-done. You know what I mean? It was like him and one of his bandmates had like spent the last three months fucking building this thing. And I remember he sat me down in the mixing room and to play me some of the music they had recorded there. And it sounded bad. I mean, it was not well recorded, but the music itself was dog shit. And I remember being like, oh, okay, well, there you go, was kind of like my response. And uh, I could tell my girlfriend was not happy that I said this. I, I, I don't think she likes hearing me talk about people this way, and maybe you won't either, but I just have to be honest about how I remember the situation. He was sitting across from me, and I remember asking him something like, and especially as a 15-year-old who had their whole life ahead of him, I was kind of probing you know, what he was hoping to accomplish out of music as old as he was. And honestly, I don't know how old he was. He could have been fucking 24 and I'm remembering him as if he was 40. Like that just fucking happens when you're younger. Everybody looks older. But he was probably in his mid to late 30s. I think it's safe to say that. He was at least mid 30s. He was probably as old as I am now. And I go, all right, well, you're the manager of Sam Goody now, but like if you could, if you had your druthers, what would you do with your life? And he looks at me with this kind of like breathy, self-seriousness, and he goes, I'd be in a band. And there was something about the way he said it and the earnestness with which he said it that was fucking tragic to me because even at 15 I knew there was no fucking chance in hell that was ever going to happen and it wasn't just that the fucking odds are stacked against you anyway even if you are phenomenally talented it's that your band is awful and I'm sure there are many things that you are good at and we could take some time to explore them but music is definitely not one of them unfortunately and there was something about it was sort of this 
feedback loop of, you know, he clearly didn't see his talent. He didn't have an honest assessment of his talent. And it just, yeah, obviously the guy was just not very in touch with things. And maybe that sounds like a dick move to say, but that, that, that's what I experienced. Anyway, folks, we've kind of gone long here. Uh, It's time to get out of here, unfortunately. There are some other things listed here uh, on the Google Doc for topics I wanted to get to, but hey, I guess we can just bank those for the next time, huh? Um, We traversed a lot of ground, uh, and, you know, I'm not sure what it sounds like to you folks, but I actually really enjoyed this one. Some of the podcasts, I think, um, we've been kind of tiptoeing over some sensitive topics recently, and um, yeah... Not that I feel like I've said anything I necessarily regret, but it's it's just a little, you know, I, f- I leave those episodes feeling a little tender because, you know, I'm trying to share how I'm actually feeling, but I also realize we're talking about things that are sensitive. So maybe in some ways this was, yeah, maybe this episode was just a way for me to sort of um, talk about something else. And uh, I feel like we traversed some interesting ground and... Um, it was a pleasure. Uh, if you're already subscribed to the podcast, perfect. Uh, if you're not, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And also take a moment to rate and review the show. If you like it, give us five stars and give us a good review. Type a few sentences about what you like about the show. And if there's someone in your life who you think would enjoy it, share your favorite episode with them and help us grow the audience for this podcast if you can. Otherwise... Thank you for sitting with us. Thanks for letting me talk at you for the last hour or so. Thank you for your time. And ciao for now.